looking at uh, the book of Haggai, which is in a part of the Bible that uh, maybe we haven't opened for a long time. I know before I started to spend some more time in it uh, in the last few years, it was definitely a part of the Bible that I was blowing the dust off as well. Uh, it's, Haggai is the third last book in the Old Testament. It's one of the 12 minor prophets that Mark referred to before, and minor uh, just means uh, it's based on size, it's not based on their importance. Uh, it's only two chapters long as well, and it's only referred to directly once in the New Testament. So it's a book that maybe seems a bit obscure, to say the least. Uh, but it's also part of Scripture, God's inspired word to us. And as we spend time with the little-known prophet Haggai over the next couple of weeks and listen to what he said to the small weakened nation of Israel over two and a half thousand years ago. Uh, let's listen for God's message to us today. Let me pray for us. Lord our God, speak to us now through Haggai. Open our ears and our hearts to hear your voice. Be gentle with hearts that are broken. Rebuke hearts that are hard and make us more like your son. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, it's been about two years uh, since the world was introduced to a very specific experience in the COVID pandemic. Perhaps we're not all emotionally ready to revisit this yet, uh, but let me ask you the question. How did you get through the great toilet paper shortage of 2020? Were you one of those supremely organised or fortunate people who happened to buy a few packets of toilet paper in the first few days of the hysteria? Or were you caught out, living from one piece of toilet paper to the next, desperately searching supermarkets for a single roll to see you through the next few days? During that time, we got a really clear picture of what people will do when there's a perceived or actual shortage of something. We can look back now and maybe laugh about it, but even a few weeks ago, we saw the same thing happen again, didn't we? Supermarket shelves stripped by, because of staff shortages and disrupted supply chains leading to more panic buying. The international competition for vaccines has been a similar and much more significant version of the same thing. When there, is, when there isn't enough, it can bring out the worst in people. We turn inwards, focusing on our own security and fiercely guarding our own interests. Our psychologists sometimes refer to it as having a scarcity mindset, when a real lack affects our feelings and decisions. And there are plenty of areas in our lives where we can experience this scarcity. Uh, in the last two years of pandemic, we've missed out on life events like weddings, anniversary celebrations, graduations, births and deaths. Perhaps you lost career opportunities because of COVID, or you might be mourning the lack of experiences like travel and spending time with friends and family. And even apart from COVID, a scarcity mindset can still control how we think and behave. There isn't enough time to get everything done. I don't have the capacity to help everyone who needs it. I don't have the energy or the money or the opportunities to do what I want to do. 
So how do we live as faithful followers of God when we hardly have enough to get through the day sometimes? What is God's response when we don't have enough? Well, Haggai is set during a time when the Israelites, God's chosen people, were living with a scarcity mindset. They were contending with famine, opposition from surrounding nations and national trauma. They genuinely did not have enough. And in that context of real need, God speaks words of rebuke and also of grace to his struggling people. Well, to build a bit of context around this book, uh, Haggai takes place about 500 years before Jesus and 500 years after David and Solomon, the greatest kings of ancient Israel. Uh, Under David and Solomon, the nation of Israel was at the peak of its prosperity and power. But after King Solomon died, a series of terrible kings led to corruption and injustice. And finally, after hundreds of years of God warning and pleading with his people, uh, God poured out his wrath, his judgment on his people. Foreign nations invaded the promised land and took most of the Jewish people into captivity in Babylon. It was a terrible time for Israel. Their government was dismantled, their homes destroyed, and their people deported. It seemed that God had abandoned Israel. The Babylonian army also destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, the place where God had chosen to dwell among his people. It seemed that all hope was lost. Well, after 70 years in exile, Cyrus, the king of the Persian Empire, which was the new superpower at that time, passed law so the Jewish people could turn to Jew to the land. So in 560 BC, the exile arrived at Jerusalem of hope exception, the new beginning. From Haggai chapter 1, verse 1, we can tell the exact date. It's the 29th of August, 520 BC, 16 years since God's people had arrived back in Jerusalem. And things are not going well. Uh, The whole reason the Israelites had returned to Jerusalem was to rebuild the temple, God's dwelling place. And they'd started off with enthusiasm when they first returned, which you can read about in the book of Ezra. But the Israelites have never got beyond the foundations of the temple. On top of that, they've only partially rebuilt their capital city. They're facing open hostility from surrounding people groups. And on top of all of that, there's been several years of poor harvests, bringing poverty and uncertainty. 16 years of disappointment and what do the lights do when there isn't enough? Well, verse 2 tells us that the people are saying, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Israel are hardly enough to even protect themselves, and so they put building the Lord's house, the temple, right down their list of priorities. And I think we can understand how they feel, can't we? It seems pretty reasonable to prioritise yourself and your family when there isn't enough ground. He sends his prophet Haggai with a message to the leaders, Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest, and also to the people. And in verse 3, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panel houses while this house remains a ruin? God calls them out for making and focusing on their own comfort 
instead of obeying him. He describes the Israelites' homes as panelled houses, uh, probably suggesting they're quite comfortable homes, well cared for. Uh, In our context, we might picture them with a freshly painted front door, lots of pot plants, maybe even a bathroom renovation underway. God then sets up this stark contrast with the state of his own house. The Israelites have left the Lord's house as a derelict ruin. Whole pieces of stone missing, probably scavenged for other houses. Weeds growing through the cracks in the foundations. Bits of scaffolding holding up pillars. An abandoned building project inhabited by rats and wild dogs. God's temple is meant to be a place where he's worshipped and glorified, a place that draws people into God's very presence. The temple before the exile was a sacred place of beauty that displayed God's holiness. But instead, this temple is a neglected hovel. No one would want to spend time in God's house. While the Israelites have been busy looking after their own homes and their own interests, they've ended up neglecting God. The state of the temple exactly mirrors their relationship with their Lord and King. It's a neglected ruin. Well, God drives the point home in the next few verses uh, from verse 5. Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Uh, And then in verse 9, you expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. God tells them to look at the state of their nation, to give careful thought to their ways, to look around them and see if they can figure out the reason things have been so hard. They eat, but they never really feel full. They drink, but there isn't enough for a good party. They have clothes, but the chill always gets in. It's like they're constantly filling up a bucket that's full of holes. All their hard work just results in frustration and failure. Why? Well, life is hard because the Israelites have neglected God. And in the next few verses, God goes further by calling for a curse on the land to stop rain falling from the sky and crops growing from the ground. Now, we have to do a bit of work here to understand these verses' relevance to us. Uh, The danger is that we might apply them directly to ourselves. We might start to think that our lack, the things we're missing, are because we've done something wrong. Maybe my lack of good health or family or job success is my own fault. Perhaps I haven't obeyed God properly, so he's punishing me with scarcity. Of course, our actions do have consequences, But it's not about manipulating God to get what you want. That's not quite what's happening in Haggai. The words God uses here in Haggai are the words of the covenant. 
the agreement he made with his people through Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. God had chosen Israel to be his people. He'd made a covenant with them, promising to be their God. And in response, Israel had promised to love and obey God before anyone or anything else. It's a little like uh, maybe a modern business contract containing stipulations and consequences that both parties agree to. The covenant in Deuteronomy promised blessing to Israel if they devote themselves wholeheartedly to God and also warned of curses if they neglect to love God properly. And so the ancient Israelites would have heard Haggai's words and understood their significance. Instead of good harvest, there's drought. Instead of peace, there's opposition. Instead of abundance, the people have scarcity. They are experiencing the curses of the covenant that God had warned them about because they had disobeyed God. They'd neglected their relationship with God by leaving his house in ruins. Well, for us today as the church, we are God's people of the new covenant, a covenant sealed by Jesus' blood on the cross. We're invited to be part of God's new family, to obey him by committing ourselves wholeheartedly to him. But like the Israelites, we often fall short of wholehearted devotion to God. Our relationship with God can sometimes look more like a neglected ruin than a well-cared-for home. Our time and energy are scarce, and so when we've finished our daily to-do list, we often have little or nothing left for God. And, well, God's message to us is actually very similar to his message through Haggai to ancient Israel. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? Have we spent all our time focusing on our own interests, our own priorities, and neglected our relationship with God? It's a hard word to hear, isn't it? I find it hard. Because when I feel like I've only got enough left for myself and my family, God challenges me to obey him, to be committed wholeheartedly to him. When you feel like you haven't got enough, God challenges you to be committed wholeheartedly to him. When our resources are scarce, we need to reassess our priorities and make sure our relationship with God occupies the top position. But that's not the end of the sermon or the chapter, don't worry. God's message through Haggai isn't just a message of rebuke and cursing. It's also a message of grace. Haggai's message from the Lord also brought hope to the Israelites. It brought hope because God was still speaking to them. Their God, the God of the covenant, is still speaking to them even after centuries of their disobedience, even after the exile, that great judgment for Israel's corruption and unfaithfulness, and even after their recent neglect of the temple, God is still gracious and faithful to them. He's still speaking to them and wants to have relationship with them.
And in the middle of all these warnings, God shows even more grace. He tells the people exactly what they should do to restore their relationship with him. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured, says the Lord. God tells them, go get some timber and start the work you should have been doing all along. Build my house. And when they do that, their obedience will bring delight and glory to God. The temple was the place where the Lord Almighty was worshipped that displayed his glory. And rebuilding the temple would allow his people to experience the blessings of the covenant and God's presence among them again. Their obedience will bring delight and glory to God. For we no longer worship God in a physical temple in Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus announced right at the beginning of his earthly ministry that he is the ultimate temple, God among us. And through the church, uh, through Jesus, sorry, the church is also God's temple. As Josie read for us in 1 Corinthians 3, a temple built on the foundation of Christ. And so we're no longer invited to build a physical temple, but we are invited to be part of building God's church. Now, this kind of building for God uh, can look like a whole lot of different things. Uh, For example, it could look like service to the poor and marginalised. Or it could look like growing a deeper love for God's word through prayer and meditation. Or speaking about and living out our faith to non-Christians. Or shaping our hearts and our homes to be places of Christ-centred hospitality. But do we approach God's invitation to obedience with a scarcity mindset? When we haven't got enough, we can start to fear that God's invitation to obedience maybe will take too much of our resources. Do I hold back, maybe, from wholehearted devotion to God because I'm scared he'll ask too much of me? Well, let's see how the Israelites respond to God's invitation when they didn't have enough. Well, then the leaders of Judah, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. And Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the leaders of Judah and all the people came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty. So after 16 years of inaction, within 23 days of Haggai's message, the people came and began to build. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? For a group of people who throughout their history have largely been stubborn and disobedient, the Israelites demonstrate this rapid, stunning turnaround. In the midst of scarcity, the people respond to God's voice with obedience, repenting of their striving after personal security, and they fear him. They switch their allegiance to the Lord Almighty. And at the same time, God makes an amazing promise. 
Uh, it's only four words, so maybe it's a bit easy to miss, but its ramifications are massive. God promises his people, I am with you. Before they've even achieved anything, God rushes forward with his arms open, a promise on his lips. I am with you. I am with you. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus echoes these words from Haggai. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. These are Jesus' words to us. I am with you. That's God's solution to scarcity and lack. The Israelites aren't expected to obey out of their own meagre resources. We're not expected to obey out of our resources. God promises his presence and power so that we can obey him even when we don't have enough. God gives us the resources to obey him. He gives us himself. And wonderfully, we're even better off than the ancient Israelites because when we follow Jesus, we have his spirit in us, his power and presence living in each one of us. So when God invites us to build his church, to serve the outcast and the vulnerable, to speak the gospel to others, to show his love to one another, when he invites us to obey him in, this, in these ways and in other ways, he's not expecting us to, doing it, to do it from our own resources. He gives us the resources by giving us himself. And when we obey him, we bring delight and glory to our Heavenly Father. Well, whatever life is throwing at you at the moment, whatever you're struggling with, be comforted that God knows we don't have enough. And when he calls us to obey him, to build his church, he also promises us his presence and his power so that we can obey him. Well, let's stand as Bob and Fiona lead us in our next hymn uh, in praise to Jesus, the sure foundation of, our ch of the church. Please stand.